We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, we're so excited that you joined us today because we're still in the Tudors, aren't we? Yes, we are finally wrapping up the Tudors, though, folks. Of course, some of you might not want us to. You might want us to keep going. Yes, but. I, think, <laughs> I think there's a lot of intrigue. And, you there know, is. Um, obviously, there were so many Christian women during that time that we don't even know about. Yeah, it's true. I know you mentioned some connected with Anna Askew in our previous episode, but mm-hmm. I mean, even those, I'm, I'm sure there's way more stories yeah. connected to them. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I remember mentioning John, uh, Joan Botcher, who was an Anabaptist, was kind of off, mm. but still that did not merit being uh, burned at the stake. I know. <laughs> no, the Anabaptists got a bad rap. <laughs> they did. So I, I forgot to tell you, but I think you know by now, I'm Cheryl Broderson, and I'm in studio with <laughs> Jasmine Allnut. And we're you so know. excited uh, to bring you this podcast, yes. and especially this one, because we're talking about another tutor yes. that I find very intriguing. Yes, she is. In fact, honestly, I think her story is one of the most tragic stories in English history, especially in terms of like among the royalty and the aristocracy. It's just really, really sad. But but there's there's beauty in it, as you will see. So uh, her name is Lady Jane Grey. That's who we're going to talk about. And so she is famously called the nine-day queen of England, and you will see why as we go along here. So Jane was born in 1537, so during the reign of Henry VIII, again, the Tudor period, right? Yes. And she was actually the granddaughter of Henry VIII's uh, little sister, Mary. Okay, so she is technically a member of the Tudor line as a cousin, right? A, kind of a distant cousin. So that's very important to her story. So keep that in mind that she is, you know, uh, the, is basically Henry VIII's great niece. Okay. And what's important, I, I think, I don't know if we brought it up on the last podcast or the one before that or the one before that, is that. Henry VIII had put his nephews, had put uh, Mary's children Mm. in his succession line, his sister's children, because when he only had the daughter. Yeah, he's worried about, yeah, well, what's going to happen? So he brings his nephews into the succession line, but his nephews died. Mm -hmm. His nephews died before Henry died, Mm. and they had children, and that's what we're dealing with. Yes, exactly. So when people, yep, we're dealing with a bunch of girls. (laughs) Yeah. So Jane's parents were Henry Gray, who was the Duke of Suffolk, and Francis Brandon, who was Mary's daughter. So this was, you know, again, Henry VIII's sister, Mary, that daughter. Okay. And again, (laughs) we're dealing with the girls. Yes, we're dealing with the girls. Yep. And she was the daughter of Mary and the previous Duke. So so basically, Henry and Francis, that's who we're dealing with, uh, Henry and Francis Gray. And so Jane was their uh, oldest daughter. She's described um, by Alison Weir. I'm going to read something from her in a little bit here. As uh, slight in stature with fair freckled skin and sandy hair, she was a charming person, very small and short. (laughs) I thought that was cute. So she's just this petite little thing. Now, Henry Gray, her dad, Jane's dad, was a committed Protestant, but he, I don't know, he he was committed to his faith on a certain level, but he was a very weak and a self-indulgent man. He didn't have the strongest character. He may have believed in the Reformation cause, but he wasn't like a, a strong moral figure by any stretch. And he didn't really appreciate Jane because she was a girl. Sadly, they had had a son who died young. And so it was kind of like, oh, great. Now we're just stuck with girls. And so there was Jane and then two other sisters, one of whom I believe had some kind of um, like a mental illness or some kind of a disease of some sort. So, you know, they didn't have a lot to they felt like they didn't have a lot to show for themselves. Yes. I think that might have been Catherine. Yes. Yes. Because Lady Mary would later go and live with the Duchess of Suffolk. Right. Exactly. Yes. 
So Frances, Jane's mom, was basically, she was an ambitious, insensitive tyrant. One historian named Paul Zoll, he called her kind of like the equivalent of the wicked stepmother in fairy tales. And she really was. She was kind of straight up evil. And a lot of people mm. would comment on on that, like, wow, this woman is uh, very brilliant and intelligent, but it's kind of a waste because mm -hmm. she has such a froward will. <laughs> So um, they would do, the Greys would do anything to advance their cause through their children. And when they saw that they had daughters, it's like, well, we're going to use them to, um, to try to arrange advantageous marriages. Uh, again, especially Jane, because she was the oldest. And, and so, that was common during that yeah, time. I mean, what we, they did. We learned last week about Anne Askey's father making that arrangement yes, with uh, yeah. the Kime family just as a land grab. <sighs> yeah. You know, and especially really women were expendable. Yeah, totally. They were pawns. And that's mm -hmm. pretty much what we're going to see with Jane's life. So, all right. Now, Henry VIII, by this time, had had that long-hoped-for son, finally, through his third wife, Jane Seymour. Hopefully, you guys remember the story that we told of Anne Boleyn. So he had the first couple wives, Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, who he divorced for Anne Boleyn. And then he had Anne Boleyn beheaded. And then he married Jane Seymour. She uh, had a son, but she died, right? I think she died in childbirth, didn't she? Or so, soon, or soon after, mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, this son's name was Edward, and he was nearly the same age as his cousin, Lady Jane Grey. And so you can maybe see where this is going. Being the self-promoting, ambitious people that they were, Jane's parents saw that their eldest daughter could be a potential mate for the future king of England, right? And that would make her the future king. It's like, oh, if we could hook her up with Edward, then, hey, we're sitting pretty at this point. So, sadly, pretty much Jane's entire life, she was a pawn, moved around by the whims of the political powers around the throne, including her own parents. Um, so, it's it's really quite sad. In fact, from historic accounts, we can um, conclude, and even from some of Jane's own words, that she was pretty much um, what we would now call physically abused by her parents, um, you know, um, in the sense that they would like beat her for the least infraction, like not even for doing anything wrong. She just suffered a lot. They were just controlling and scheming and they wanted to make Jane perfect so that she could hopefully become Edward's bride. And so it, it was just really sad from the time she was a little girl. So um, when Jane... And yet yeah. her education, right? Oh, yeah, we'll get, yep. So when Jane was nine... Nine years old, she was sent to live in the household of Queen Catherine Parr, partly to keep kind of strategically near the throne. That was kind of the plan there. <laughs> and uh, Jane and Edward did end actually end up spending quite a bit of time together. They were cousins, you know, and it's neat because they were both really, uh, really had a heart for the Reformation, which I'll bring out with Jane in a minute here. And they really had a heart for the Bible and the things of God. So they were very like-minded and friends. And by all accounts, it was actually a really sweet friendship, but... Emphasis on the word friendship there, because Edward didn't want to marry Jane. You know, there were people that were, again, her parents and some other people that were scheming to try to bring her forward. Like, hey, Edward, how about Jane? But he didn't want to marry her because um, his father's wishes had been that he would marry um, Queen uh, Mary Queen of Scots, of all people, or um, somebody, maybe like another um, European royal. And so he kind of felt like he should honor his father's wishes. He didn't want to marry Jane. Again, he loved her as a cousin, a friend. They were very like-minded, but there was nothing else there. And so um, Jane ended up staying with Queen Catherine until, uh, Catherine Parr, until her death, and Queen Catherine's death in 1548. And as we know, Catherine really was um, a caring and a nurturing stepmother to Henry's kids. We've talked about that before. Cheryl shared about that with Catherine. And 
And that carrot really extended to Jane as well. And we know from a lot of letters that they wrote to each other that they had just such a sweet relationship. In fact, um, Jane was 10 years old when Catherine died, and she was actually the chief mourner at the funeral. So that's how close she was, how much she loved Catherine. And so, uh, you know, even though maybe her parents, Jane's parents, put her there for political purposes, it ended up being really a blessing to Jane to be under Catherine's watch and just care and kindness. And so it's neat how, I mean, I almost see it as like the Lord providing um, sweet, caring people in Jane's life because her parents were so uncaring. And so after Catherine died, uh, eventually Jane did end up back at home because it became clear she was not going to be marrying Edward. And, you know, as much as some people were trying to connive and make it happen, it just wasn't going to pan out that way. There was so much intrigue involved with this. Actually, Thomas Seymour, Catherine Parr's husband, was trying to make it so that Jane could be close to the throne and all of this. It just got really yucky. <laughs> so, uh, but Jane did end up going back home, much to her chagrin. I don't think she really loved being around her parents, as you can imagine. So Jane was, however, very well educated, and this was her outlet. And she was a child prodigy. It was said that she actually was more learned than even Lady Elizabeth or King Edward. And so, I mean, that was, you know, that was really saying something because they were very intelligent. You know, um, Elizabeth, the daughter of Anne Boleyn, right, and Edward, they were very, you know, well-written, well-read, all of those things. But uh, Jane you know, exceeded them all. She was fluent in French, Italian, Latin, and Greek. She could also read Hebrew. Um, her first tutor, his name was Mr. Harding, he actually recanted and went back to Catholicism. But her second tutor was a man named Mr. Aylmer. And he was her saving grace, especially during these years with her parents. He had come on the scene when she was very little. Um, but man, he would just constantly uh, be almost like a father figure to her. In fact, um, one historian said when she was little, he would carry her around in his arms and teach her diction. So here she's this little girl, and it was just so unusual for her to receive loving affection from anybody. And so, like I said, God put Catherine Parr in her life, almost like a mom. And then uh, Aylmer here was kind of like a father figure to her and just such a blessing. So he was a strong Protestant as well. And so he really instilled solid um, biblical beliefs and gave Jane just a real foundation in the word of God, in the things of God, and he just loved this little girl. And so when Jane was 14, she was, you know, at home one day reading. I think everybody was out, and uh, this man named Roger Asham, he was a friend of her dad's, came to their house, and um, they told him, oh, Jane's the only one who's available. He's like, that's okay. I'll go sit and talk to her. So he went in to talk to Jane, and she was um, reading Plato in Greek for fun. <laughs> and so he asked her about it, like, wow, uh, not many young girls would be doing this. What do you find in all of this? And so he recorded her reply in his book that he wrote called The Schoolmaster. And give, this gives us a real window into Jane and her heart, her life. And so really showing maturity beyond her years, she said, um, one of the greatest benefits which ever God gave me is that he sent me such sharp and severe parents and so gentle, a schoolmaster. And then she goes on and talked to him about how she had to basically perform perfectly in front of her parents, or she would be, uh, quote, sharply taunted, so cruelly threatened, yea, presently sometimes with pinches, nips, and bobs, and other ways, which I will not name for the honor I bear them, that I think myself in hell, until the time comes that I must go to Mr. Aylmer, who teaches me so gently and pleasantly with such fair allurements to learning. And that's what basically overrode all of her troubles. And so you know, her learning was such an outlet for her in such um, just a hard, hard childhood, as, you know, hopefully you can kind of imagine here. So 
Uh, Ashton was so impressed. And he, I mean, he would, he wrote quite a bit about Lady Jane. And even though he didn't, I don't know if he ever came into contact with her again, but she just made such an impression on him that he really admired her. And he was actually pretty appalled at her parents' conduct. But I have another quote Anne. by him, too, that, oh, yeah, go ahead. that he wrote of her. For, she said, For when I am in the presence, either father or mother, whether I speak, keep silent, sit, stand, or go, eat, drink, be merry or sad, be sewing, playing, dancing, or doing anything else, I must do it as if it were in such weight, measure, and number, even so perfectly as God made the world, or else I am so sharply taunted, so cruelly threatened, yea, presently, sometimes, mm -hmm. as you said, with pinches, nips, mm -hmm. and bobs, and other ways, which I will not name for the honor that I bear them, I think, myself in hell. So Jeez. there it is. Oh, it was mm -hmm. just so bad. Having her every move, you know, censured and, and watched, it was just so... So difficult. I mean, even just, again, from the time she was such a young girl, I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. how would you be able to, it'd be hard to handle as an adult having somebody doing that to you, yet alone as a little kid. And so one historian said that when her parents realized that Jane wouldn't be marrying Edward, they took it out on her as if it was her fault. Mm. And so she had nothing to do with any of this. Again, she's just a pawn being put in these positions. I mean, it's not her fault that he pre previously felt like he should honor, you know, his dad, King Henry. I mean, it, it, again, that might have played into some of this, why they were so harsh towards her. So, But it's incredible, and you kind of see that in that quote, that Jane could look to God in the middle of all of this. And, and she really had such a remarkable walk with the Lord. Of course, her, her learning was an outlet, but her relationship with the Lord gave her the refuge that she needed during this time. And from the time she was young, she just really loved Jesus, loved the things of God, the Word of God. In fact, when she was 15, she apparently wrote two letters to the Swiss reformer Heinrich Bollinger. And we've talked about him before. We talked about his wife, Anna, and what uh, just a wonderful Reformation couple they were. And he, she wrote asking for his advice on theology and Hebrew language study. Okay, what would be the best way for me to go about learning Hebrew? And so we actually don't have his replies, but she thanked him for taking her questions seriously. So he must have really, you know, um, taken the time to write to her and it just develop a neat correspondence there. Uh, she also wrote to my favorite reformer, Martin Bucer, <laughs> asking him the best way to learn Hebrew so she could read the Old Testament in the original language. So she's getting all of this counsel from these uh, reformers and and they were responding. And so it's just um, a really neat I wonder if one of the reasons she, she wanted to read Hebrew is because of, you know, the Bible as as because it was in question whether Tyndale's Bible or oh, Myers yes. cover, was you know, it true, accurate. Cover dealt. Right. And so perhaps that was it mm. to make sure, you know, the surety of what she believed in. That's an interesting point. And, you know, because she was such a brilliant scholar and had such a, you know, just such a precocious mind, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if she's thinking like, well, I want to make sure for myself. That's Why not? Right, yes. I mean, I would not be surprised. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in 1553, so she's, uh, what, I think she's 16 at this point, she gets sucked back into, unfortunately, the vortex of political intrigue around the English throne. So what had happened during those years while she's, you know, living with her parents and all of that sort of a thing, uh, we know Henry had died. It, he actually died around this, right before Catherine Parr, around the same time. Uh, in 1547, and at that point, not at the time, nine-year-old Edward had come to the throne as King Edward VI. And like I said, as a Protestant, as a reform-minded little boy, he began to make some really great reforms in the church. He allowed for religious toleration, which hadn't been happening 
up to this point, as we know. So, I mean, he was a really godly kid. (laughs) And so he's growing up, right, and becoming a teenager. However, his health had started to decline really dramatically uh, about five, six years later. Again, this is while Jane had gone back home to live with her family. Edward is coming to his own um, as king. And yet, uh, when he was only, what, 15, 15, 16 years old, he starts having these health troubles. He had um, some kind of a blood disease. Um, Nowadays, we would have been able to treat it, but back then, nobody really knew how to handle this. So Edward was still pretty young, and so he had what was called a regency council led by a lord protector. The lord protector was always somebody who would, you know, oversee the young person in line for the throne or on the throne. And so his second lord protector was a man named John Dudley, who was the Duke of Northumberland. So Dudley as he's realizing, oh, cred, Edward is sick, and we don't even know if he's going to survive. It just looked like he was really starting to go downhill. And so Dudley could see the writing on the wall, and he saw, okay, if Edward dies, <laughs> let's be real here, Mary, his half-sister, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, hopefully you guys remember, that was Henry's first wife, right? She had had a girl, and Mary was the legit rightful heir to the throne, and she would become queen. Now, because she was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, who was from Spain, Mary was also really had a lot of Spanish roots, and she was Catholic. And so, um, in fact, Mary had become a very zealous Catholic at this point. She's she's zealous only because she's interested in a Spaniard. She was actually, um, well, by Edward's letter to Catherine, mm. she was very, uh, uh, we would probably say carnal, but, she was. She was very, very materialistic. Very yes. materialistic. Loved dancing. Loved jewelry. Jewelry. Yeah. All these things. She wasn't like a deeply spiritual woman mm. by any account. Because when you say Catholic, sometimes and when you say zealous, you think of somebody who's spiritual or somebody who's virtuous at least, but Catholic. Mary was not virtuous. She was not moral even. So I think those are important uh aspects to bring out about Mary, though she was a zealous Catholic, it was more political than— Which it was for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Than it was spiritual. And I just think that's an important point when you talk about Mary. Right, right. So, um, and in that, though, in that sense, in that zealous uh, political frame of mind, um, she would definitely— you know, take the take the throne a different direction. Right, exactly. <laughs> then it was going. Again, exactly. Edward was a very devout Protestant, you know, and so he's taking the church in the direction of the Reformation and, yay, let's get the Bible in the common language and let's put the Book of Common Prayer in English. He was the one who installed that in all the churches. And so, you know, it was clear Mary was going to do something different. Not only that, but Dudley knew, not only am I going to lose my position, but there's a good chance I could lose my life if Mary comes to right. the throne. She's vengeful. Yeah. Yep. So there was that all going on and just the, the yeah, the desire to protect the throne. And so uh, as Edward lay dying, Dudley went to him and, you know, in a vulnerable state here, he kind of took advantage of Edward and played up the danger of losing the Protestant faith if Mary took the throne. And so he convinced Edward, here's what you need to do. You need to change the act of succession so that Lady Jane becomes queen. Remember, she's a friend of yours. She's a Protestant like you. She's your cousin. And there actually would have been a very shaky case for this because if Mary was disallowed, Jane could sneak in through her royal bloodline as a cousin. And remember, it was Edward who wrote the letter to Catherine Parr saying, don't trust 
Mary. Mm-hmm. You know, can you speak to her? So I think there was already tension between Edward and Mary. I right. think even Edward saw uh, these there is, tendencies yeah. in Mary. Oh, yeah. And as you're saying, like the Catholic stance, that obviously is not going to be friendly mm-hmm. towards, you know, what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And there were actually, I just remembered, there was some something that Mary had written as well. She was really concerned as Edward's changing the churches and all of that sort of a thing. She was really worried about where that was headed. But uh, whoever she wrote to, I can't remember who it was, one of the noblemen or the lords, somebody near the throne, um, they wrote back to her and said, be careful. Don't overstep, you mm-hmm. know, Mary. Mm-hmm. Be careful. So, there, yes, there's tension there. There's a lot of uh, intrigue in all of this. And so uh, Dudley kind of, like I said, he took advantage of the situation, snuck in there and uh, convinced Edward to change the, to try to change the act of succession. Uh, not only that, but Dudley, of course, for his own uh, position, he also forced Jane to marry his son, Guilford, in May of 1553, because he's like, hey, if Jane gets on the throne, this way my son could be like the, you know, the, I don't know if you'd call him the king. He'd be like the uh, Lord Regent, Regent. Lord Regent or something like that. Right. So, I mean, again, these people are all out for themselves. Everybody's using the people, these, you know, basically children in their lives for um, their own political position to consolidate power. Uh, Jane was, like I said, she's just a girl. So was Guilford. Guilford was about the same age as Jane. They're just little teenagers being thrown into this by Guilford's dad. So it was super sad how all of this uh, was coming around. And so sure enough, a couple months later, on July 6th, Edward died and Jane took the throne on July 10th, whether she wanted it or not. Dudley had quickly arranged everything so that this would happen. Again, the marriage went really fast. Her marriage to Guilford, it was just all so sudden. And you've got to know her parents are all for this because they want their daughter to have a place of prominence. But an interesting thing, too, is that um, she was married in a triple wedding. I mean, her parents not only married her off, they married their daughter Catherine off, too. So It's just um, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And again, no thought for the kids, no thought for their happiness or what's best for them. It's all political. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we know Mary's not going to go down without a fight here. Yes. <laughs> and really, she did technically, according to just English law and all that sort of thing, she did have the strongest strongest claim to the throne. She was one of Henry's legitimate descendants, right? And so um, especially because it was obvious to everybody that Dudley was forcing all of this And it also became known that all of these things he'd been trying to put around, uh, you know, put over on Mary with Edward, the act of succession issue, it wasn't really binding unless Mary died. So there was this thought like, oh, we can make this happen. And so, like I said, he throws Jane on the throne and yet none of this was binding. None of this was clear. It was all very like uh, convoluted. Yes. Well, also, too, you've got the the whole thing where at one point Henry had ruled— uh, his daughter Mary illegitimate by Catherine because of the— um, Oh, to get Anne Boleyn and all that? Or? Yes. He did it on the grounds that he shouldn't have married his brother's widow. Oh, yeah, that whole thing. So that marriage was never legal, and that's why he wanted the pope to annul it. Mm-hmm. So at that point, he was saying that Mary was illegitimate, and that's the claim that a lot of the Protestants were trying to make toward Mary, that she was not the legitimate— Heir. I mean, they recognized, oh, yeah, Elizabeth, yes, but not Yeah, Mary. they're trying to, yep, mm-hmm. trying to alienate Mary. Right. And, yeah, exactly. So no wonder Mary came with a vengeance. Oh, yeah, she is not happy about any of this, you better believe. Right. And so, um, but it's interesting because um, 
one historian, Paul Zoll, he said that even some Protestants had enough horror of meddling in the divine right of royal blood that they conceded the justice of Mary's claim. So there were were still Mm -hmm. those who were just like, I don't know if we can really put this over. Mm -hmm. And also, not only that, but again, a lot of people could see pretty clearly that this was a a veiled power play by John Dudley. Mm -hmm. This wasn't Jane's idea. This wasn't Guilford's idea, right? This was all John Dudley. And not only that, but he really underestimated uh, the love and respect that the English people had for Henry VIII's children, you know, Elizabeth probably more so, but Mary even, they respected. They were just like, well, these are Henry's kids. And so in a way, Dudley didn't really read the room on that one. He thought he had more um, power behind him or more, um, I don't know, just that he had more clout than he really did. And so this is sad because Jane and again, even Guilford, they had no say in any of this. They're just getting jerked around. And then Dudley and Jane's parents took up arms against Mary which meant that Mary had to deal with all of them, including Jane. Um, It is worth noting that um, later on, as we get towards the end here, um, Jane's dad apparently had a little bit of a change of heart. He softened a bit and, you know, he started to actually care a little bit more about Jane as a person. Her mom never did. Her mom was all about just power plays and she was very ambitious. But her dad um, really wanted to free his daughter from all of this intrigue. I think he started to realize and have a little buyer's remorse here with what was going on. Um, But, uh, you know, it didn't really help Jane's cause that even though she was, yes, an innocent pawn and being pushed around in all of this, she was an outspoken Protestant. In fact, uh, she had once offended Mary by remarking on the unbiblical way that Catholics viewed the mass, the communion, saying that it was the actual body and blood of Jesus We've talked about that in previous mm-hmm. episodes. Transubstantiation was such a, a big deal. The idea that Christ was continually sacrificed. And of course, you know, uh, you know, the reformers would disagree with that. Um, the scriptures don't teach that. And so, you know, the, it was just this big mess with transubstantiation. Uh, also, at one point, Jane had called the Catholic God uh, a detestable idol invented by Romish popes and the abominable college of crafty cardinals. <laughs> she also had been given gifts by Mary. Um, Mary actually was a very generous person. That was something that was known of her, that she gave jewelry to a lot of people. She would give gifts to a lot of people. Um, And Jane had refused to wear the gold jewelry that Mary had given her because she said it would be a shame to follow my Lady Mary against God's word and leave my Lady Elizabeth who follows God's word. Now, (laughs) these are all very sincere, passionate statements, but very, very unwise and unguarded. Um, I think we could cut her a little bit of slack because she was a kid. She was. (laughs) You know, it's interesting, though, because— what people would say about Catherine Parr is, though, she probably did not believe in transubstantiation. She never made that an issue because she knew if she made that an issue, she would lose the war. Right. And she was fighting for these greater aims. And mm. that's where you you see this wisdom where she acted, you know, yeah, very uh, circumspectly considering yeah. what she was up against. And, of course, a young girl. She's zealous. You know, she's more like Anne Askew, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And just really feeling passionately these things are wrong. And yes. And with Jane, you see, and we're going to see this too as we continue on here, but she was really sincerely concerned for people's souls. And so, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if she was concerned about Mary's soul on some level, Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, why is she following? So in her Mm -hmm. mind, she's trying to turn her the right direction, Mm -hmm. but that can happen when we go in, like you said, zealously and in, in youth and passion and it's, without the wisdom. Right. And filter. it's important to remember that Lady Jane Grey lived with Catherine Parr, mm-hmm. who had a close relationship with Mary. Yes, that's really true. 
that's really true. And so perhaps she knew that, you know, Catherine Parr cared yeah. so much about Mary. Also, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, and Catherine these people Parr's are all connected. mother had been a very close friend, you know. Yeah, of, Catherine of Aragon. Right. And had been and Catherine Parr had been named after Catherine mm. Aragon. So I think and even Edward was saying to Catherine, you know, Use your influence on Mary. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously there's... These people are all, we have to remember these people, so many of them, they're all either related or very closely connected. This isn't just like distant people they're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And so, and yeah. And what I've heard too is people weren't so concerned about Mary, but the influence is on Mary at this point. Mm. Because there are uh, Spanish courtiers mm-hmm. who are courting her that they doubt the sincerity and they believe that they're working to get England aligned with Spain. Oh, for sure. Definitely. That's That's happening. That's part of the problem is they they know that Spain wants to rule England. And if you remember, Mm -hmm. you know, King Henry had had that uh, fight with Spain. You know, the Armadas. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. Wait till we get. Yeah. When you get further with Elizabeth's time, Spain and England are going at it. Yeah. So, Yes. It's just, yeah, it's a very unhealthy situation. Mary desperately wanted to be married and have children. That was her own personal struggle as she was getting right. older. And That's just right. so, I mean, and she was so in love with Philip in Spain. It was That's like, right. So there's just a lot of blindness to a lot of That's things right. happening. Yeah. So oh, you know what? We need to probably wrap it up next time, don't we? We do, Jasmine. <laughs> That's okay. We knew this would happen. Yes. <laughs> We're out of time, but oh, there's so much more about Lady Jane. Oh, yeah. Oh, even yeah. We have gotten to the— Even though she's called, you know— you know, the nine day queen, the nine day queen. <laughs> it was There's, a long are, nine days. Those are significant nine days. Yeah, they were. <laughs> and we'll get to that. But we wanted to tell you to we're really excited because you have begun to write us. Thank you. And to send in your stories and suggestions so that Jasmine and I are pretty busy. Yeah, we're loving it. So continue to send them in again. You can reach us at um, gracious words. Dot com and you can go to Women Worth Knowing there. You can also go to women at cccm.com. And again, the link for Women Worth Knowing is there. And we want to thank you again for writing. We're glad you're listening. Yes. We're glad you like these stories as much as we do. <laughs> but again, we'll be back next week with the second half of Lady Jane Grey. Yes, we will. See you next time. That's right. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.